Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of February 2018 and this is episode number 49. In this programme, I talked to Dr Bill Mitchinson on his latest book which examines the 48th South Midland Division during the First World War. This has been recently published by Helion & Co. Bill, in my opinion, is probably the greatest expert on the territorial force and he has written extensively on the organisation. I spoke to him from his home in Manchester a few days ago using the Marvel's internet telegraphy. During my interview with him, two pile drivers were busy at work nearby, so there might be a faint thumping in the background. Apologies for this construction-related problem. Bill, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, Tom. Um, Dates back, I suppose, to my great-uncle Jack, who was in the London Rifle Brigade and served all the way through and survived and uh, he was a frequent visitor to the house delighted in sort of bouncing me and my brothers up and down on his knee and telling us all about the great war mum and dad had both fought all the way through the second dad had been a pre-war regular and mum was a, a, a ta before the war and again they both served right through and um I suppose I grew up in in that sense, in what was a sort of semi-military family, but of course all their friends and the parents of my friends and so on had also served. So it it was that generation that we were brought up with, the the black and white films and the John Mills and Jack Hawkins and that sort of thing. And my interest was just uh, sort of started from there, I think. So why did you think a history of the 48th Division was needed? Um, Really, I think because... Um, there, there hasn't been, if you ignore the the two divisions which went to India, who didn't keep a sort of divisional identity, the Wessex and the home counties, the 46 um, has a divisional history of sorts, although it's not a full one. Uh, but the 54th didn't have one, the East Anglian, and the 48th didn't either. So I thought that perhaps here was a, an obvious gap to try and fill. And uh, when Hellion approached me and said, would I do something for them, I thought that this was probably a good idea, certainly. The 48th Division was a Territorial Force unit. What was the difference between the Territorial Force and other types of army unit in the Great War? I'm sort of referring to regular and new army units. Well, the the Territorials, of course, had had only been founded since 1908. They were the descendants of the volunteers when Haldane had, had done his reforms and created the Territorial Force. So the, the regulars always liked to feel themselves very distinct from the territorials and looked down upon them and resented the money that was spent on them and so on. Uh, the, the new armies were created, as you know, by the war itself, as it were, under Kitchener's auspices. But the, the difference in the sense is that the regulars had long tradition and formality of regimental history and so on. The territorials it was shorter. Most of them had come out of the volunteers, which had been formed from about the sort of eight, late 1850s. Um, they were formal, they were structured, of course, and in some ways they were as class-ridden as um, the, uh, the regulars were. But they were, I think, distinct from the new armies uh, in the sense that they had this tradition and ethos, um, which had been developed over the decades. But in many ways, the new armies were similar 
to the uh, territorials in the sense that the territorials, as I've long argued, were sort of POWs units, whether it be battalions, batteries, squadrons or whatever. They, they were these POWs long before the new armies had ever existed or brought into existence. They were blokes who worked in the same factories and mills and mines to some extent, sprinkling of lower middle class as far as the other ranks were concerned, as well as the working class and artisan class. It wasn't quite as working class as the volunteers had been, I don't think. But uh, there, w there was a good cross-section of society, and the officers were drawn from the upper middle class largely. They were the architects, the engineers, the mill owners, the estate managers, that sort of thing. And um, it was, in many ways, a very incestuous organization in that um, the officers tended to marry the, the sisters of their... Um, fellow officers and so on and um, the continuity of service was generally pretty great in the sense that they would stay perhaps from a lieutenant all the way through for 20-25 years with many of them ending up as the colonel of their particular battalion or unit or whatever it might be. So they had a, um, a formality, a structure which was maintained through I think until about 1916. Um, when they began to lose, or many of them began to lose, a sort of the territorial force identity in the same way as the new armies did um, after the Somme, when they were being rebuilt um, by drafts from often many other regiments in different parts of the country. Now, the 48th Division was created in 1908 as an administrative structure, and it had a distinct geographical area from which it drew its main. Can you tell us about the units? Yeah, the, the units were drawn as the name suggests, from the, the area around the, the sort of South Midlands. You have four uh, battalions, in other words, a brigade from around Birmingham and Coventry. Then the uh, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire Brigade uh, was two of each from those. And then the South Midland Brigade itself was more of a mixture in the sense it had one Gloucestershire and uh, the Royal Burks, the Ox and Bucks, and the Bucks Regiment itself. So they came from a wider area. Um, the, the artillery came from Gloucestershire, Worcestershire, and Birmingham, and uh, the, two, um, the two field companies came from, um, uh, from Bristol, and the um, uh, field ambulances came from Birmingham and Bristol. So it was a fairly large swathe of country from which they were drawing their men. And again, there was a mixture of urban battalions and units and uh, men from the rural areas as well. It's a significant stretch of Middle England from which they recruited, you know, from the, the depths of the black country down to far more sort of rural Buckinghamshire. So what, what did this unit do in the war? On mobilisation, it was um, uh, the, actually the second strongest division in the territorial force. Only the North Midland was closer to establishment of its sort of just over 18,000 men. And uh, it went off to its war station fairly quickly and um, up to Essex, where it was involved on digging some of the London defences as well as um, trying to get itself fit and the recruits that needed to be um, brought in, trained and so on. There were the usual problems with um, uh, uh, with recruitment and uh, because the new armies of course were in competition with them but the territorials had the advantage of um, having ready access or readier access to 
the uniform suppliers, the boot suppliers and so on, which they've been dealing with for, in some cases, several decades since the, the years of the volunteers. But they went to Essex and um, Hamilton, Sir Ian Hamilton, who was um, CMC Home Forces at the time, of course, looked at the South Midland and thought it was probably about the best division under his command of the Central Force and was then very surprised when um, the North Midland was selected to go over before the South Midland was. Um, he, he thought that the physique of some of the Warwickshire battalions was particularly good. Um, but he, um, he assumed it was a Kitchener decision, and the North Midland, of course, was under the command of Montague Stuart Wortley. And uh, he was a persistent tender at the war office, saying that my division must go first, and so on. So the South Midland went as the third territorial force division in the end. And they departed in March and assembled in April, uh, or concentrated in April, uh, in the Plug Street area, which is where, after instruction, under the 4th and 6th divisions, uh, trench climatization and so on. They took over the, uh, the line there and were there during the course of uh, while 2nd Epe was going on elsewhere. It stayed out of that and then from June, July 1915, it uh, went down as part of the vanguard of the British armies down to the Somme. And for the next uh, 10 months or so, it stayed very much in the area around Hebuturn and Serre, that sort of sector, um, rotating um, its, its units, its brigades and so on in that sector. Before then, on the first day of the Somme, it only had two battalions involved. Two of the Warwickshire battalions were attached to 4th Div to attack the Redan Redoubt. And then um, it became, as a division involved in Ovia um, during July and August, up around Skyline Trench and Moki Farm, sort of that sort of sector. And finally, the Somme, the, the final months of the Somme were spent up at uh, Le Sars and in the sector around the Butte-Wallencourt. Uh, it was withdrawn from from there and um, went uh, just south of the, the river and uh, to the Maricor sort of area. And then um, during the retreat to the Hindenburg Line, it followed across towards Biache, it was it entered Peron and then out towards Epi or Epier where it um, assaulted in early April and um, then spent the next few months sort of hammering away at the outposts of the um, Hindenburg line around Guimor Farm and that sort of area before moving quickly up to Beaumets around Hermes, Avrancourt, that, that sort of area. And then of course came Third Ypres and um, it spent a long time um, up in the salient. It was part of 5th Army. It um, spent its time around the St. Julien area and sort of Polkapel, Langemark, um, slogging its way through the mud of Winchester Farm, Wellington, and County Crossroads, and those sort of areas which, as you know, were just total and absolute swamps. It, it didn't take part in any of the real sort of, set, or it didn't have a major role in any of the set-piece battles of 3rd but it was in the line for considerable periods um, and doing small-scale actions rather than the bigger ones, but still lost quite heavily as a consequence. And once withdrawn from there, it went down to Vimy um, very briefly before it was um, then decided to send it, along with several of the other British divisions, over to Italy. And it had a, a long break before it actually went into the, the line briefly on the Montello before then up to the Asiago where it spent from sort of May, it faced the Austrian offensive of the 15th, 16th of June up on the Asiago, 
and then um, teamed up with various other, or was put into Italian core partly, but uh, made its way up towards the Austrian border and over. And in the by the time the uh, armistice was signed, they were into Austria. And uh, then withdrew, withdrew and eventually demobilized and so on, and of course back to the home of Birmingham and Worcester and so on. So it was a long war for them. It was um, a great advantage, I think, that it had in that it hadn't lost any of its units before um, it sailed as a division, unlike so many of the other territorial force divisions which had been sort of butchered, essentially, for individual battalions to go overseas before the divisions themselves sailed. So how did the division change in terms of structure, ethos and commanders over the course of the war? Yeah, that, that's a, an interesting um, one as far as I'm concerned, being particularly interested in sort of command and control and ethos and so on. It, um, like, like most territorial force divisions before um, mobilization, as I said, it was um, peopled by or manned by um, individuals with who wanted to be there. They deliberately volunteered to be a territorial, knowing that actually it cost them money, it cost them relaxation time and so on. It was often ridiculed in the press as a force which um, was a waste of money and of no no point in having the home defence. And, of course, many of them, uh, many of the critics wanted it to fail in order then to be able to force the government to introduce some sort of conscription for home defence. But when it sailed in um, March 1915, so, uh, something like two thirds, sorry, three quarters of its um, commanders, i.e. the uh, unit commanders, um, were genuine territorials. All of the senior commanders were, of course, regulars, as was to be the case all the way through the war, and that was common across all divisions, with very few exceptions. Uh, once it was overseas, um, several of the COs went fairly quickly and re were replaced by regulars. But um, funnily enough, by the time it was in Italy, midway through its term there, there was only one of the infantry COs who was not actually a territorial. In other words, there had been promotions from within. And that, that I think, is very important uh, in its maintenance of territorial ethos and the, the genuine bonding that appears to have taken place in the, uh, within the division itself. So the, the character of it remained to a good extent, but there were, of course, influxes of men from other regiments and other parts of the country. And it's something like just over 50% um, in 1918 of the dead uh, did come from um, outside of the immediate catchment areas where the division had traditionally um, recruited. As far as the senior commanders were concerned, the, there was one um, territorial um, RE, had been a territorial when it sailed, and um, there was another one appointed temporarily. Um, within it, but all other senior officers were regulars, and of course the um, GOC from May 1915 through until just after the Austrian offensive was uh, Fanshawe, one of the Fanshawe family who had two brothers, of course, who had been war commanders as well. Uh, he, known as the Chocolate Soldier, and um, he was really very highly thought of in the um, memoirs written after the war, and it came as a great shock to the division that he was sacked by Cavan, who was the corps commander, who decided that um, Fanshawe had not done what he should have done, and the division needed a shake-up, 
um, following the, the Austrian offensive of 15th, 16th of June. But overall, I think it did maintain a, a reasonably good territorial force cohesion. And geographically, the men came from similar parts of the country. It wasn't, I don't think, as extreme as some of the other territorial divisions which had blokes from one part of the country who couldn't understand those who came from another because of the accents and dialects and stuff like that. So yes, it was a, um, it, it kept an identity, uh, not solely from the South Midlands, but certainly from that sort of area. I think the majority of the men came. And how would you rate the performance of the division over the war? I know divisional performance is a, is a hotly contested subject and we obviously won't set complex metrics, but in your sort of opinion, how did it perform relative to other units? Yeah, it's, um, as you say, it's, it's difficult to analyse that successfully, I think. Um, there, there are periods in its, in its history where you can see that it certainly was improving. Um, the period, on the early period down in the Somme sector around Ebu Term, it was pretty naive, I think, when it first got down there. The patrolling and then the raiding um, developed. And you could see, and if you look through the, the war diaries and things, you can see how things were, or liaison in particular, were improving. They were getting the, the act together, I suppose, to put it colloquially. And then by the time they got to the Somme proper, in other words, up on the, the heights above Hovia, um, they they're hand-to-hand fighting in very close contact trenches a lot of the time. It's, it's difficult, again, there to see that um, anything radical was happening as far as tactical development was um, concerned. But the division was persistent, and it persevered um, in those battles. Likewise, when it was just a matter of sort of mud survival, essentially, up in the Lassars area. But the... Um, the time spent in the re- German retreat towards the Hindenburg line, I think, shows very good staff work on the part of the division. And it does a few good raids um, once the lines have settled down. But then there, are, there was a dreadful couple of attempts um, when it was at, at Guillemot uh, Farm and around about Saint-Emile, when, when attacks just simply shouldn't have taken place. The, uh, the preparation was not sufficient and that the consequences were predictable but the assault on EPA itself uh, worked very well there was a blizzard and a snowstorm um, and then uh, they established themselves opposite the, the Hindenburg outpost line um, and, and stuck it but the period at Third Eep um, again you can see that their, their training programs they're, they're using the SS pamphlets and so on that becomes apparent if you look through their um, schemes of work that are being drawn up, but the, the terrain sort of mitigated against um, effective um, tactical advancement development because, of course, it, it just the terrain was just so against anything other than slowly slogging towards and trying to take out the concrete mebus for, um, whenever possible. Uh, so that showed persistence again, um, good spirit, but uh, I mentioned in the book that Vaughan came across a sergeant and a couple of blokes in a shell hole, and he said, come on, let's get going. And they said, no, we're not, we're staying put. So but that's, I'm sure, not unusual for many of the blokes fighting, fighting up at 30. Um, so you can't condemn a, a division purely for the instances of, of what a few men are reported to have said. But in Italy, and this, this was the great 
controversy, I suppose, as to how well it did. It was blamed for not stopping the Austrian offensive in the same way as the division to its right, which was the 23rd, had done. And it's a complicated story, um, but as I said, resulted in Fanshawe being sacked. But um, I think that the division did all that could have been asked. It was working to a plan. Um, during that offensive of those two days. It was very much under strength because of the flu bug that had been going around, unlike the 23rd, which had largely recovered from um, the flu. And the the front line was held uh, very thinly, but the idea was to draw um, the Austrians into a pocket by a series of switch trenches and so on, and then annihilate them there. It worked, but it it took a little bit longer than perhaps it should have done, and the division lost um, a few more, a couple of hundred more men or so than the 23rd did. And I think it was really unfortunate in in the sense that there had to be a scapegoat, and Cavan decided that um, here was a good opportunity to give the division a bit of a shake-up and bring in a new GOC. So Fanshawe was sacked, and... um, there was a great defence in the post-war years on his behalf, and even Edmonds, the, um, the official historian, wrote uh, to Fanshawe, and uh, sorry, it was Fanshawe, he wrote to someone anyway, sorry, and um, he came, he, he said that, yes, Cavan was too stupid to understand the concept of elastic defence, which I don't think is absolutely right, because Cavan wasn't a bad corps commander. But um, they wanted, I think, simply to get uh, Walker, who, uh, Harold Walker, who came with a good reputation, into the position uh, to show the Italians that, yes, all right, we know there were a couple of mistakes made, so there we are, we're, we're making changes and appreciating those. And the rest of the, the war and during the Australian retreat and withdrawal, um, the the division did well. Um, I think overall it was, it, as I say, not a spectacular division. It didn't have any great um, victory to its name. It didn't have a Rickerval or you know anything like that, which it could look back on with particular sense of achievement. But it persisted. It was uh, resolute. It was resilient. It kept going. And uh, that's the tale of so many ordinary trench divisions of the Great War. Finally, Bill, where can people get your book? Um, I, I would imagine probably the, I, I don't really want to advertise this, but I would imagine the place is Amazon. Bill, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...